Every year, artists from all fields of the arts and from all parts of the world travel to Saari residents in southwest Finland to focus on their artistic work and exchange ideas and experiences. The Saari residence aims to be a test platform for the future that is sustainable ecologically, socially and mentally. This podcast stems from themes that are essential in the residence's daily ecological activities. Together with invited experts, we talk about returning to our roots to restore nature and ourselves. My name is Mia Leine, and this is Reviving the Wild. How often do you think about birds? Of all animals, birds are the species I see most often in my everyday life. They are always present, but I rarely think about them or notice them, unless it's in a negative way. Seagulls stealing my food, or pigeons congregating on the pavement and being in the way. We don't really regard birds as something worth noticing, something worth respecting. Elisa Ardola is a philosopher specialized in animal ethics, moral psychology and environmental philosophy. If one could sum up Elisa's fascinating work into one question, it would probably be this one. How can we treat non-human animals better? Currently, Elisa lectures at the University of Turku. I meet up with her in Tuomanpuisto, a lovely park right next to the university. It's the beginning of May and the park is filled with different kinds of birds singing. Blackbirds, jackdaws, blue tits, great tits, crows and pigeons. You can also hear seagulls nearby and even one pheasant. In cities, people, myself included, often just walk by birds. Are we missing out on something? Yes, it's a shame that people often just walk past birds like pigeons or seagulls or crows without noticing them. And that's because these birds are extremely intelligent. So there's a lot of research now to show that birds are capable of many kinds of cognitive tasks that primates can't do. So they, in fact, excel human beings in many things. And still we often treat them as if they were somehow not worthy of our attention and not valuable as individuals or as species. And um, I think that we really need to shake things up and make people notice birds more. This philosopher that I really like called Iris Murdoch has written about how to become more attentive to one's surroundings and one's world. And she uses the example of observing a kestrel in the sky. So she writes beautifully about uh, watching this kestrel just fly around calmly and suddenly realizing that she no longer remembers any of her egoistic immediate goals, but rather just wants to understand the bird better. And this is something that I wish we all could do, at least now and then, with also the ordinary species, such as pigeons. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, birds are not even ignored, but also seen as a nuisance, like pigeons and seagulls especially. So if you, if you look, there's a blackbird over there. Um, what kind of thoughts come up when you're watching that bird? Um, well, the first thing is, 
as, as is always the case with birds, that I, I can't... Um, it's inconceivable to think that such small creatures who look ordinary have such extraordinary minds. And I read a lot of research concerning bird cognition. It's something that I'm fascinated by. So every time I see a blackbird or any sort of bird, I feel first astonishment and then humility because I think they're probably smarter than I am. <laughs> and um, one interesting question is, what does the bird think of me? And what do non-human animals think of us human beings, human animals? Because um, unfortunately, we don't treat them always in an ethically advisable way and we cause a lot of harm. So next to the fact that they're so intelligent, I'm also intrigued by how they relate to us and what do they think of us? Yeah, I think humans tend to not see themselves as part of nature, but do you have any idea what they could think? Probably many birds are quite scared of human beings and quite apprehensive. So I think that they like to keep their distance. But in parks like these, um, they also can become um, more curious and even tame in certain circumstances. And particularly young birds can be quite inquisitive. So they jump from one tree branch to another and come closer and closer. I often work here with my laptop and the young birds in July and August start to approach me and and they want to know more about me. And, and it would be interesting to know what do they think of such apes as we are? Well, what do they make of us? And I wish that the, the things that they um, come up with, the beliefs that they form concerning human beings were positive, but that would require us human beings to treat them better, to treat non-human animals better. You write a lot about empathy towards other species. What do you think we could do better? How could we treat them better? Well, the starting point is to pay focus on what sorts of beings animals are. So particularly their mindedness is vital to notice. We have to eradicate the old misconception that animals are dumb and, and they, they don't have cognitive abilities and, and they don't have even consciousness according to certain very old-fashioned beliefs. We have to eradicate that sort of anthropocentric worldview where only human beings have minds and, and capabilities and value. So the first port of call is to recognize the minds of other animals And once we do that, and once we notice that they also have consciousness, and I mean by that the ability to feel one's existence as something, so it's like something to be a blackbird, it's like something to be a seagull, um, after we notice that we can also engage with them empathically, so we can feel empathy towards their experiences and, and towards their emotions and perspectives. And after that comes the, the, the normative dimension, Uh, for instance, recognition of, of the inherent value of non-human animals and perhaps even, even animal rights. Our relationship with other animals is often a question about value. Since the 17th century, Western culture has been very focused on how they could instrumentalize animals as efficiently as possible. And that gave birth to animal industries. Before that, rural agriculture was quite different. 
But for example, now in Finland, we have poultry farms that have 150,000 birds. So we're speaking of something that's industrial. It's no longer just farming. It's an industry. I have thought a lot about our complex relationship to non-human animals. Yes, we have pets. They can be our companions and they're here to console us. We value dogs and cats and pets in general as individual personalities. Elisa speaks a lot about how we recognize the minds of animals when we don't need to instrumentalize them for our culinary or financial gain. It's easier for us to let the poultry industry thrive when we don't think of broilers or hens as extremely brilliant creatures. And when we do strive to make use of their bodies, then we have to ignore their minds. There are some scholars who argue that because birds have been utilized so extensively and they are still utilized so extensively, their minds have to be ignored. Broilers are the most instrumentalized animal on the planet. The amounts of birds, broilers and hens that are used is staggering. So in Finland alone we slaughter 82 million hens and chickens and broilers a year. Um, and that level of instrumentalization makes us incapable of noticing the intelligence of birds. It's uncomfortable for us to realize that, hey, they are in fact like us in many ways. They form beliefs, they have concepts, they have complex communication. Hens, for instance, have at least 24 different types of um, signals for each other, probably a lot more. Um, they have memory, they have learning, they have problem solving. And the same applies to wild birds. Uh, but with the fact that we use so many broilers comes the fact that we also look down on uh, wild birds often. And, and we really need to shake things up and, and question why do we perceive birds to be cognitively incapable when in fact they are so intelligent and when in fact we have a lot to learn from them. I think humans, or maybe um, we're talking from a very Western uh, perspective, but um, talk a lot about the intelligence of animals and how they're valuable because they're intelligent. Is there another way of going kind of beyond just intelligence and seeing value of worms or other um, creatures where we maybe can't compare the intelligence to our mm. intelligence? Mm. Well... I have used the word intelligence a lot here, but in fact, I think that morally what's most important is the ability to feel and, and to be uh, conscious in the phenomenal sense, which means to feel existence as something. What is it like to be a bat is this famous philosophical article and, and it um, engages with this issue and notices that even if we don't know what it's like to be a bat, we can know that it's like something to be a bat. And this is something that we should really pay focus on. Um, there is a whole horde of studies to establish and manifest quite vigorously that sentience and consciousness and this ability to feel and experience is widespread in the animal world. And it's morally relevant because... A stone doesn't feel anything that I do to the stone, but a dog or a pig does or a bird does. And um, 
we intuitively accept that suffering is a bad thing and happiness is a good thing. And as sentient, conscious beings, experiencing creatures, we humans can um, empathize with the suffering and happiness of, of other animals. And for us, as these sorts of biological creatures that are effective and, and feeling, for us, it's self-evident that it's it would be a good thing if the feelings of also non-human animals were positive rather than negative. Mm. Um, but then, of course, also other things such as life matter. So, so um, I research also environmental ethics and and there this theory of deep ecology and biocentrism fascinate me. And they approach the issue not from the perspective of cognitive abilities or even consciousness, but rather from the perspective of, of ecological holes and the value of life in general. Could you give an example? Well, biocentrics think that life in itself is something inherently valuable and you cannot have a greater inherent value than life. Um, And because of that also plants have have anything living, plants, cells, bacteria, anything that is organic has inherent value. But then there are differences in, in how we ought to treat different categories of life because they can come with added capacities. And so therefore they argue that because animals can also feel things, we have to treat them differently from trees or bacteria, which probably cannot feel things. Uh, but then deep ecology brings the ecological issues to the foreground. And that's something vital to notice in the era of climate change and species extinction. Um, what we do to other species doesn't impact only that species, but also the other species around it and ultimately also our own species. And the danger is that we are about to collapse a house of cards and and Uh, eradicate vital uh, ecological chains, which is detrimental to the future of also uh, Homo sapiens. Do you think humans, especially us, that always kind of relate to animals in in a relationship of of use or benefit for us, be it for eating culinary or um, or money? Or then even this kind of more positive use that we get out of pets. But do you think we can ever truly get out of that and ha- live truly in um, in cooperation with animals? Well, that is a brilliant question. And, and using things and beings is unfortunately part of life. So without... Some form of instrumentalization, we have no existence as living organisms. But we can try and limit the harm that we cause, and we can combine this necessity with also recognizing the inherent value of of others. And here it's crucial to try and um, focus on others sometimes through what I call other directedness. So when we are using others, we are self-directed. We think of what can I get from the other. But now and then it's good to be other-directed, focus on the other and try and conceive what their inner reality might be or 
if it's a tree, for instance, what their reality is. What is that thing? What is that being? What is it like to be a bird? These sorts of questions are significant. And the philosopher that I mentioned, Iris Murdoch, has spoken of this and the necessity of trying to find ways of diminishing or trying to find ways of limiting the influence of our egoistic desires. We cannot completely eradicate them, but we can try and attune them in a way that respects also the inherent value and the realities of others. So in a complex and often perhaps demanding way, but also I think quite possible way, we can try and bring harmony into our needs of using the surrounding reality and at the same time respecting its its creatures and things and entities and phenomena. And Murdoch spoke of attention in this Uh, in this text where she deals with this issue. And attention is something that one gains when one avoids overt egoism. So as soon as we venture into a forest, for instance, and do that without seeking immediate benefit for ourselves, without seeking to use its woods or use its um, wood or use its berries or use its animals in in a given way, or even without using it for aesthetic experiences and and pleasant feelings. As soon as we do this, as soon as we put those egoistic desires on the side for a while, we start to develop a different mode of epistemology, whereby we start to recognize things and entities as they are in themselves. And here Murdoch speaks of noticing the realities of others and noticing that those realities are as significant as are our own. And this is what she ultimately calls love. So attention is the same thing as love. And I have in my own work emphasized Murdoch's ideas and brought them forward and argued that we need this sort of attention and love when it comes to non-human nature, but also when it comes to non-human animals and, for instance, birds. So we should really pay attention to them and notice their realities and ultimately love them. After talking to Elisa, I started thinking that bird watching is actually one of the nicest ways to get to know birds. I know it sounds obvious, but I really mean it. Bird watching is all about appreciating birds in their space, which we sometimes share with them. The Sari residence is located right next to Mia Toistenlachti Bay. It's a protected area and well known among nature lovers and bird watchers. Mia Toistenlachti Bay is one of the most important bird wetlands in Finland. It has huge importance, in particular as a staging site for migratory water birds during springtime. But it also hosts an important breeding population. I'm lucky because I can visit the place with a bird expert, Mia Renka. Mia Renka is an ecologist, science editor and writer, and the chair of the Circumpolar Seabird Expert Group. The leading interest that guides her work as a scientist, writer and artist 
is the relationship between humans and nature. There are a lot of great birdwatching sites right next to Sari Manor, and one of them are the Silakkari Cliffs. On the way there, we walk along wooden planks and see two adders sleeping in the sun. They are still a bit stiff after the winter, but we pass by them carefully. And after a short forest path, you can see the cliffs. This whole area is a nature reserve. How is it being kept like this? Does it need human intervention to be beneficial for the birds? There are many different biotopes in this area. So, for instance, these traditional rural biotopes, they are maintained by grazing, so having cattle to, to graze here and, and also mowing. And these traditional rural biotopes, they are completely dependent on human presence. They would not exist without human intervention. So they need this grazing and mowing. Otherwise, they start to grow over and, and get closed. Kind of the natural succession takes over and there will be bushes, there will be trees eventually. And then these habitats would get lost. At the time of this recording, we're here in early May, so it's still pretty cold, <laughs> but we still haven't put away our winter jackets yet. But there's a lot of colors already. The ice is gone. Um, the bay is completely open and you can see tiny waves on the on the blue sea. Behind that, you can see um, yellow reeds. And then behind that, there's forest. And um, on this side, there's forest on top of rocks. And then you can see on the other side, some mud flats as well. And Sara and Kartano is actually right here on the bay, uh, overlooking this whole thing. Um, is this a special landscape in this area? I think southwestern Finland is, is very interesting in the sense that the coexistence of man and, and other, other parts of nature is very old here. It, it goes way back several thousands of years, all the way to when the first scaries rose from the sea. And also this site is ancient seafloor, so the very valuable agricultural lands and, and mudflats, those are former sea sediments. And also there is a long history for, for the Saari manor. It goes back to the 13 hundreds and and the manor itself was established in the 1600s and it was owned by the Turku bishops to, to, to start with and it kind of 
reflects nicely the long history also of the, the coexistence of of people and, and other nature in, in southwestern Finland and the large effect that people have had on the nature and biotopes here, both in in good and bad. So in, in good, for instance, in terms of these traditional rural biotopes that would not exist without human presence and that host a lot of endangered species, for instance. And in the bad? Well, of course, we, we know what kind of detrimental effects people in general can have on nature, for instance, in, in terms of climate change, in, in terms of many forest species and, and also species inhabiting uh, agricultural environments being endangered and the pollutants also the destruction of, of habitats for instance by different development activities building and and so on so we I, I think the detrimental effects of, of people on nature they are very visible and they should be taken seriously and I think there is an improved knowledge about them also and they are all more present in public discussion in, in media but then there are also these positive effects that people can have on on nature and also ways in which Actually, each one of us can affect our environment and, for instance, benefit biodiversity. You brought a telescope, which is very exciting, and we can watch some birds now. Um, what can you see today? It's quite quite a windy day and I, I think part of the birds are, are seeking shelter shelter from from the windy parts of the bay but uh, there is a quite a large flock of pigeons also teals there was a flock of about 30 individuals of oyster catchers also some ruffs feeding on the mud flats here some mute swans there a bit further down the bay usually you would also see for instance great mergansers golden eyes and tufty ducks here pintails but now, at this time, I, I didn't spot, spot any of, of those species. Also, the, the, the terns have arrived and there are some herring gulls, common gulls. Uh, yeah, a lot, quite a lot. 
What's that? There's a uh, quite near the mud flat. There's a quite a large flock uh, just swimming in the water um, of like different colored birds, and they. It looks like there's a lot of movement. They're like swimming around. What are they, and what are they doing? Can ah. you see? Yeah. 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 So that that flock is teals. They are looking for feed. This is a very beneficial place also for dabbling ducks like mallards, teals and wigeons because it's very shallow. So it's easy for them to, to find feed. There are a lot of birds here in Miatostenlahti that come from a long way away, that come from Asia or Africa. How does climate change affect some of these species and how they interact with this environment here? So climate change affects um, our breeding and and wintering populations and, and the, the species that that migrate through Finland in many ways. So it can affect the quality of the in environment, for instance, in, in the breeding grounds or, or the food resources um, in the wintering areas along the migration route or, or in, the, in the breeding grounds. It can affect the phenology, which is kind of the timing of the different events in the bird's life uh, or, or yearly cycle. So, for instance, timing of breeding, timing of migration or, or the hatching times. And uh, it can affect the match of the breeding time with the largest abundance of food resources. So, so there can be, for instance, this mismatch between the breeding times of the birds and the food resources that they need for, for their young. Did I answer the question? Yes, absolutely. So, for, for example, let's say um, the birds, of course, want to be here when there's the most food with their young. So that means if you count back, so that's maybe in June or now, May, June, if there's like the most food for them. So then they need to count back, okay, when do we start to need breeding to have um, to have young at that time? So then when do I have to start migration? So it's like an incredible amount of calculation going on as well. Yes, and... The effects of climate change also depend on whether you are a long-distance migrant, a short-distance migrant, a resident in which habitats you, you live, what you feed on. So, for instance, for long-distance migrants, it's much more difficult to anticipate what the conditions here in the breeding grounds are. So if the species is a short distance migrant, it's easier for it to adapt to the changing conditions or, or kind of um, anticipate when 
it's beneficial to, to, for instance, move on in the migration. But if you are a bird wintering in sub-Saharan Africa, then of course they would not know what the conditions are here when, when they, they start the migration. You just mentioned that the sea has been rising and the hill that we see, the Sari Manor, the Saaren Kartano, where the residencies take place, also used to be an island. Sari means island, so uh, that's really interesting to hear as well. Um, at Sari Residence, there are a lot of artists together with scientists as well, but what do you see the possibility of art or the role of art and artists being in this environment? I think art in general has a huge potential in addressing different ways of seeing, of, of looking at different things, uh, different views of different topics, so a possibility to look at things in another way or to experiment on um, experiment on different futures, to have this what-if aspect. So I see art as kind of this experimental laboratory in looking at ways differently and, and exploring different future. It also holds a huge potential in communicating uh, different topics and, and also uh, raising empathy for other parts of our environment and, and also evoking this emotional level also in terms of, of nature conservation, because it's not only facts that we base our decisions on, it's actually more, or, or the emotional level can be more effective than the facts in raising awareness and in evoking action. Miatoistenlahti Bay is a great example of a place that couldn't thrive without human intervention. It's a very delicate balance of biodiversity that is being maintained there. This shows once again that we are one species among many. And it's not just other animals we share our space with. In the next episode of Reviving the Wild, we talk about trees and forests. My name is Mia Leine. Thank you for listening.